Blog Talk Radio. the number one podcast for plus-size women. I'm your host, Shanice Lewis. Today is Monday, April 13th, 2015. Don't forget to like the show's fan page on Facebook at facebook.com slash Shanice Lewis Show and on Twitter at Shanice Show. And follow me on Instagram at Shanice Lewis and tell me what you think about today's show. Now, we have a very special show today with the ladies of Pinup Girl Clothing, CEO Laura Burns and Creative Director Micheline Pitt. Now, working out of her home in 1997, Laura Burns began sewing vintage-inspired garments with modernized fits for herself and friends. In 1999, seeing the lack of well-made vintage reproduction clothing on the market, she founded Pinup Girl Clothing and made the decision to produce her goods in the USA. Micheline Pitt joined Pinup Girl Clothing in 2007 and brought with her a vision that has helped expand the company far beyond its modest beginnings. She started as a wardrobe assistant and has grown exponentially to become irreplaceable designer, marketer, and merchandiser. Let's welcome Laura and Micheline to the show. Hello, Hi, ladies. Thank you for having us. Hi. Nice to be here. Hi. I'm so excited to talk to um, both of you, and I have questions for you. And at the end, we have some fan questions for you from your Facebook page. So we're really social today and getting everybody involved. Awesome. That's how we like it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Laura, let me start with you. Now, tell me a little bit about your background before you got started with Pinup Girl Clothing. Okay, uh, I don't know how far you want to go, but um, I was born in New York, and I lived there until I was uh, 23. Um, I I was always kind of artistic. Um, I actually went to FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, but I went for photography, and they threw me out after four months. Um, oh, so no. I kind of, yeah, it was all right. I was I was I have a problem with authority, so it it, it didn't really work out. I was fighting with the teachers a lot, and they got sick of me and told me to leave, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, <laughs> it all worked out. And I pretty much taught myself photography, and I did that um, until 1997 or so. And mm-hmm. then when my when I was uh, pregnant, um, I had a baby shower, and my husband at the time, uh, his, his aunt uh, made me some really beautiful baby clothes little onesies and whatnot, and, and I was just so impressed, and, and I said to them that I wanted to learn to sew so I could do the same thing for my daughter. Um, so my husband's uh, mom gave me a couple of sewing lessons. She actually only gave me two, um, 
and, and, and it's not that I'm like a genius, it's just I have to learn things on my own. So she kind mm-hmm. of gave me the basics, and, and from that I just kind of kept plugging away and started making baby clothes, but then it kind of went to, you know, a clothing for myself because I would be looking for specific things in the stores and not seeing it. Um, but then I was going downtown to the fabric district, and I kept seeing all these great fabrics, so I said, why don't I make myself some clothes? So it kind of snowballed from from there, and, and I started making things for my friends, and then they would refer me to uh, swing dancers, salsa dancers, competitive um, figure skaters. Uh, uh, I made wedding dresses. I made uh, clothing for the very few burlesque performers that were in Los Angeles at the time, strippers, you name it. I was making clothes for anyone who would let me make clothes for them. And then in 1999, we launched the website. So you uh, initially, well, right now, Pinup Girl Clothing to me has a a big niche market with like the Pinup Girl community. There's a Pinup Girl community, correct? Yep, yep. Yes. And but the, the interest. Oh, sorry. Go on. Oh <laughs> well, my question was going to be in 1999, before the boom of social media, how were you able to find and market to this niche community? Um, well, basically, there, there was a very small, tiny, tiny community of people who were kind of into this sort of thing, and it was really only the swing dancing community. If you watch the movie Swingers and mm-hmm. you see everyone swing dancing at the Derby, that would happen. That happened two times a week at the Derby, and we would go down and dance, and it was probably 200 people. So I, when I started out, I was making little string bikinis on my site. I had little... Uh, you know, I was still selling clothing to exotic dancers. I, I also had clothing that the swing dancers would be into. And I just, on the site, I just branched out as much as I could. But even the first month that I had my website, I went and found Yahoo groups that had, mm-hmm. you know, for all different um, things that I was into that I also felt that my, the people who would buy from me were, were also into and I would join the groups and become part of those groups. And it was really rude to market directly to, mm-hmm. to, to people in those groups, but you would just kind of get to know them and start talking to them, and they would know about you. And so I was, I was kind of using social media even then, in 1999. Okay. It was just on a tiny, tiny little scale in these really small, isolated little groups. But I was, right. I was doing it, and I, that, and I think that's why it kind of comes so natural to me now, because after doing that, I moved on to live journal, and I had my own private live journal, but I would go in communities. But again, just to kind of talk to people, like for instance, there's a community on live journal, and this is terrible, uh, but I'm going to say it's called Customers Suck, and it's a place where people <laughs> go and rant about the worst customers they had that day. Now, you know, I love my customers and I love my fans, but, you know, I remember in, you know, 2003 going my customers suck and, and you know, telling a story of, of a bride-to-be who screamed at me on the phone for 15 minutes, <laughs> you know. And so I would just go on and tell stories and, and you know, post, post little things that happened to me. And people would be like, oh, what's your site? So, we, yeah, we, we went from kind of marketing – 
um, in these small little groups to LiveJournal and then MySpace and Facebook. And it was just kind of like a natural progression because I had, I had always been trying to kind of find out who my customers were on the Internet mm-hmm. and talk mm-hmm. to them. Now, you're also the official photographer. Um, yes, but I, I don't do as much shooting as I used to. Uh, Holly West uh, and, and Lorianne are our two in-house photographers, and they do a lot of the work now. I, own, okay. I do about 20% of it, but I, I used to do pretty much all of it between 2006 and I would say 2013. And Micheline, tell me what do you do uh, with Pinup Girl Clothing as the creative director? Um, well, like you said, I started in a, at a very humble beginnings at the company, and, and it's grown a lot exponentially over the last several years that I've been with them. Um, I think it'll be eight years this year. And, um, you know, I, as a creative director, it kind of just became something I fell into because, you know, there weren't really specific job titles for a really long time. We all just kind of did stuff. Like, and by did stuff, we all had, like, ten jobs. Like, and, everything. Like, everything. And I was, like, running production and doing hair and makeup and helping Laura come up with concepts for the shoot and, like, helping her at the shoots. And, like, just it was always a hustle. So as we, you know, added more staff and built out the company over the last few years, it just kind of naturally progressed into this position where um, essentially, like, my – you know, day-to-day activities is if Laura is not in the office to make sure that her creative vision and what she sees as this company is happens every minute of the day. And that I take her direction that she gives and make sure that people within the company and everything we put out into that world exudes that, either through a photo, either through a creative, either, you know, from anything. So, um, you know, I'm just an I'm an arm to her her being at the company. I mean, Michelle also has ideas. I do. I do, <laughs> I do have ideas that I present, I bring to her and things that I initiate, like uh, like the Mary Blair project. Yeah, that's 100% um, So, you know, but at the end of the day, the, the creative director's role is to make sure that it is consistently staying with the company's ideas and directive and then making sure that it's not like getting stale, but we're always kind of keeping in line with who we are, but keeping everything really exciting. Now tell me what characteristics defined a pinup girl or the pinup girl culture. What what types of things define what a pinup girl is? Um, well, yeah, um, there's something that I always used to say on the page, uh, on the face, our Facebook page, especially when you know things would get kind of hot and heavy. People would start debating, and then you know, very rarely, you know, it would devolve into you know things that were not okay, like personal attacks and talking about people's bodies and things like that. Um, and what I would always say is like, look, a pinup girl is sexy, intelligent, confident, and kind. Like those, those four attributes should kind of be present. You should, you should be okay with the fact that, that we are all sexual beings and, and not be ashamed of your sexuality. You should be intelligent, and that, and that doesn't mean that you, you, know, you go to school and read books, where you should do that too, but you should be thinking intelligently. You should be thinking about yourself and other people and your place in the world and, 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 and just, I don't know, like really thinking about the correct way to kind of be. Um, you should be confident, and that's, again, you know, very important. I think that, that confidence is the thing most lacking in people who do get swept away by negative, negativity and negative emotions. It's really a security at work. 
and so you know building your own confidence and feeling feeling comfortable with yourself is is so important and then ultimately kind you know really thinking about you know the, and and that really is the last part of it because when you get the beginning part when you when you embrace your sexuality when you when you acknowledge that you're an intelligent being capable of controlling your life when you're confident in your ability to do all those things, then you actually love yourself and you can love other people and you can be kind to other people. So I feel like that's just, it, that's the definition of a pinup, but that to me is the definition of a fully realized woman. You know, right, really, because I was going to say, I thought your answer was going to be more so like tight curled hair or red lips, but you're no. making a broad, broader than that. Yeah, because, you know, the, the, the thing that we, we've always said as well when it comes to the style that we put out there is we tell people you don't need to wear the flower in your hair and the red lipstick and have victory rolls in order to be a pinup. It's not about that. It's not about surface elements. That part of it, we want to leave that up to our fans and customers. We would much rather see them buy our, uh, one of our items of clothing and turn it around and interpret it in her own way. And again, that's where confidence comes in and, and saying, I, I don't I never I never want to see an endless line of girls who look the same. That mm-hmm. there's something so oppressive about that to me. So we encourage the opposite. We want we want people to take pin up and move it forward and interpret it in any way they want. And I want them to be as comfortable as they can be. I, I don't think that – I think the thing, too, that their point is um, pinup is not a lifestyle. It's not like people associate it with, like, rockabilly and, and a very specific lifestyle. And it's like, that's not who yeah. we are. Like, and I was going to ask you, you was it similar to, to goth like, as well? It's, it's, yeah, it's it's not a celebration of the '50s lifestyle and, and everything that happened in the '50s at all. There are just some things we appreciate. Yeah, but, but the thing is, the biggest thing is is that during that time, that was like a, a, a creative, strengthening and sexually expressive idea of a pinup of people. You know, like women were uh, strong and pretty, and like all the artwork that was portrayed. And I think it's just. For us, it has nothing to do with, like, um, a subculture or rockability or vintage. For us, it's really about women being sexy and also sophisticated. Like, as Laura was saying, it's a type of dressing, and that's how we see ourselves. It's a way for women to dress themselves. Yeah, it's a way of communicating and existing. I I, I guess, yeah, we do think of it in in much broader terms than, than just the style. I mean, I, you know, both of us, were, were people that even when we were part of a subculture, each of us was pushing the limits of that subculture and we would be bored with any sort of sameness. So it's very hard for us as designers and, you know, me as a business owner to stay in a, in a, in a, in a rut. In fact, I was just speaking with a friend and we were talking about how, you know, what, what a lot of companies do, and, and I mean, you know, this is a winning proposition for many of them, is what they do is they find what works and then that's all they do. They kind of cater to the market that was receptive to that. Like, okay, you know, we made this great dress and it looks like the Monica dress. Everyone loves the Monica dress. Now let's just make all our dresses that are like that because that's really great and let's do that for as much as, as long as possible and never change because it's working. But, again, I find that to be extremely oppressive and I feel like it's boring. And a lot of companies, they end up kind of imploding because they kind of, 
come up with one great idea, milk it for all it's worth, but then because they weren't being creative that entire time while they were milking their success, when it's time for them to change and when, when styles change and attitudes change, they're screwed. They don't they, 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 they haven't been using that muscle, you know, and what we try to do is always be aware of what's going on in the world and with our customers and and we, you know, again, we don't think of ourselves as manufacturers. We think of ourselves as creative people, as designers. And as designers, we should be pushing things a little bit and, and keeping our customers interested and excited about what we're doing. Now tell me about your Couture for Everybody movement. Okay. Well, uh, about uh, two years ago, uh, we had to uh, redo the site, and I noticed that a lot of the uh, – the text and stuff was a little bit stale, and 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 so uh, you know uh, we decided to 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 basically just rewrite the the kind of welcome thing on the front page, and and I started really just thinking about like you know what what do we stand for? And again, you know we don't stand for a thin pinup genre. We stand for something bigger, and and you know I just you know, the, the, the phrase just came to my mind because I'm like, you know, we do, in my brain, I think of it as couture because we, we, our quality needs to be impeccable. And that's what, couture is just French for cutting. And of couture mm. means it's one of a kind made to order. Couture just means high quality dressmaking. And, and, and so I, I, I felt that, that that is what we're doing. We're making couture for everybody. We don't have one customer in mind, one body type, one ethnicity, one age, one gender orientation. We want anyone who wants to, to dress well and look well uh, and, and feel good and look good to, to do so and to kind of just, just join us, you know. So, so we just felt that that was a very inclusive way of getting – our, our core mission statement out, and and other than that, like we 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 don't spend a lot of time trying to artificially advance um, our views, and by that, you know, I guess we could have gotten press and and made a big campaign, but we were like, you know, I feel that this idea has enough traction on its own, and if it is a good idea, people will respond to it. And they, they really have. And I think the reason that they have is because it's self-evident that we've been doing couture for everybody since 1999 when I was actually making things to order. So is it, um, you know, excuse my ignorance for the pinup girls, uh, you know, kind of culture, but is it um, not common for there to be plus-size clothing in pinup vintage styles? Um, it, it wasn't um, a few years ago. Um, okay. Then, you know, we started doing it, and, and most of the other companies at that point caught, caught on uh, that there was a really good market out there for it. So, right. so now the majority of, of, of brands that do this style of clothing do sell – they usually go up to the same size we do, which right now is 4X. Um, okay. But, you know, it, um, it's nice because – you know, it does seem that, that now even other types of clothing brands, they're figuring out that women size 12 and over want to shop for clothes. But I, I right. feel like a lot of them don't, still don't get it. They're, they're, they, they look at a plus body and they think it's different than a, 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 a basic or straight size body. 
and they think that the, the that there's wildly different needs, uh, mm-hmm. and and there isn't. And I I really there is not much of a difference between a plus body and a straight sized body. There might be a little bit more curve. There might not. There you know there's curvy thin girls and there's straight up and down thin girls. So you know with us we just felt that you know we would make clothing that flattered. And if it flatters, it's going to flatter any size. If you are a good designer, you can make clothing look, make anyone look good. So I, I feel like some of the mainstream companies haven't quite got that yet, and they're still making tents and saying, oh, look, we have two plus size clothing. I, I don't know if you saw that Jezebel article. A woman uh, went in and tried on every single um, plus item from the new Target collection, and she was. It was just so sad, you know. I mean, literally, one of the items was like a poncho. It looked like a tablecloth with a hole cut. And yeah. it's so insulting, you know. It'd be one thing if that's what they were offering to, to skinny girls too. Like, here's your poncho. It draws the eyes up, you know. But they're not doing that. And and you know, I said once in an interview that that a lot of these plus, people making plus plus garments, they're trying to build shame into the garment. Like, no, 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 your body's still not good. We're here to cover it up for you. Yeah, and then to touch on the vintage thing that you asked about, um, yeah, they pretty much weren't vintage plus-size clothing. Very, very little was ever available because it was specially made for special boutiques or it was handmade. So the largest you can find is like a size large. Lucky if you find an XL in vintage, and that's yeah. rare. Unless it was made for an older woman. Yeah, it just didn't happen. So, I mean, I think that's why since the beginning, Laura always offered larger sizes because she was trying to cater to girls that could find certain things. Mm. Yeah. And that actually did fuel um, our plus sales because um, as the whole kind of pin-up style of clothing became popular, uh, people did also start to get interested in, in vintage so they're going okay. to vintage stores and looking for things, but the girls who were size large or over could not find anything so they could they could buy pinup girl. Okay. Now I know pinup girl clothing. Um, underneath the pinup girl clothing umbrella, you have different brands. Now for my listener who's never heard of pinup girl clothing, just give me a b- brief overview of the different brands and the differences between them. Sure. Well, we have different divisions, and, like, each division is kind of like a chapter in a story. Or, like, if you're reading a fairy tale, each one has their own moral, and, and they're all different. And um, Pinup Couture is the one that, that Laura started everything to begin with, and it's kind of like our our home base. It's classic, but clean, pretty, feminine, cute styles that really have a vast age range from teenagers to women in their 60s that purchase it. Um, and then we have the Laura Burns division of California that is, like, really elegant, beautiful, tailored, um, sexy, and super sophisticated, like everything from workwear to evening wear. I mean, you have workwear clothing and jackets to gowns. Um, and it's just a really amazing construction and design. So it's kind of like an upper tier, you know. It's, it's I feel like Tenet Couture is kind of like the entry level for many people, how they get into our brands, and then my own Deadly Dames that we do is kind of like more bad girl, like edgy in a sense. Stuff usually a little bit sexier and tighter and lower cut and like wilder prints. Or and I love animal print. Like I'm from Atlanta, and I will wear leopard print to the day I die. 
And um, <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> my, that that's kind of for the girl that's a, that's a little bit more out there with either her color pa- palettes or her friends or her, her body cuts. And we've got Dixie Fried. And then we have the Dixie Fried division that is kind of more like traditional vintage reproduction where it's a lot of like classic body silhouettes, body yeah. styles and silhouettes from like the 40s and 50s. And, and, and some reproductions of clothing worn in movies like Marilyn Monroe's Niagara dress and so on and so forth. So it's, and that's not a part, that's a little bit more of a nod to kind of classic vintage, vintage you know, repro. And I saw on the website there's a tab that said house brand. So it's house brand. What's what's the difference between that versus the other collections? No, the, the house brands are the four collections because we make all of those ourselves and sell them direct. So that's the okay. the house brands themselves are all four: Canon Couture, Barbara and Billy Dane, Dixie Price. Got it. Now, um, you do carry clothing up to a size 4X. Tell me what is the price point. Uh, I'd say the average for a dress, well, let's just say 120 average. And, you know, that sounds a little scary. <laughs> and we have dresses that go up to 200 um, but then we have separates that start at about dollars uh, they're a little bit more expensive, but we do make uh, everything in the U.S. And we use, you know, we we don't scrimp on anything. Uh, we don't scrimp on quality, you know, uh, construction, cut, or fabric. Any, you know, we don't use anything that's going to fall apart. So it is a little bit more expensive, but the way we look at it, the, the, the lifetime value of that dress is way higher than the value of any fast fashion dress, anything that you're going to buy. You know, and that's another thing, and just just to rant slightly, it's very hard. You know, I was just I was just um, uh, shopping with my daughter yesterday, and we walked by, you know, an H and M, and there was a dress in the in the window, and it was 19.99, and it's very it, it's very hard because the average consumer thinks that's normal, and that and right. I guess it is normal, but the problem is they don't understand what a tiny low standard, what low standards you have to have to produce a garment of that price. And they don't understand the actual price that other people are having to pay for them to get that 1999 dress. Like in these third world countries, you have people that are having slave labor, child labor, toxic pollution going into their country, their rivers, their air. The fact that like no one's getting paid appropriate wages, you know, where people don't think where did this dress come from and how did it get made for this little and, amount of money? Right. So that when when people say our, our clothing is expensive, I don't argue anymore and say no, it's not. I say, well, yeah, it is, and it's going to stay that way because I'm I'm not I'm not in this business uh, specifically and only to put money in my pocket. And and the only way that I would do a $20 dress is if I was a greedy person who only cared about putting money in my pocket. And I can't do that. I can't put my name on a dress and have that dress not be to the highest standards and not have the people who – because dresses are made by humans. Yes, they use a machine, but that machine needs a skilled human behind it. Um, you know, so humans are making this dress, and I can't exploit another human just to put money in my pocket. So, yeah, you're going to pay $120 for a dress, 
but that dress is going to still be in your closet five years from now where the 1999 H&M dress would be gone after about two months and it's still going to fit well and and your lifetime value, how many times you could wear, wear that dress, you actually saved money because you probably would have to buy 10 uh, of those $20 dresses over the same period of time. Actually, Now, does the, does the type of fabric you use play into the price as well? It's, mm-hmm. it's everything from fabric. We, okay, so with our American-made items, we say, like, yes, it's sewn here, but we also do American-made zippers. We do American-made hang tags, labels. Our belts are all made in America. Almost 90% of our fabrics, if not more, are all printed here in America. And whenever humanly possible with the textiles, they're also knitted and made here in America. Unfortunately, little-known fact, is there are actually no looms in the United States other than, you know, India, Korea, Taiwan, China, for making Japan, for making certain types of fabrics, woven fabrics. They do not have the technology in America to Anymore. weave a fabric with spandex. It doesn't exist at all. Mm. So yeah. we can't actually use most of our fabrics we, we use to make our clothing where it stretches and it's, and it, easy to wear and moves in your body because the technology in America does not exist, right? So, so basically, yeah, there, there's, we, we, we try to source things that are made here and print things here. We could save a lot of money if we did it overseas. But again, the more things that we make in America, that's more people that are involved in our business and that are getting money from us. And that money right. goes into the economy. Every money we, we send overseas does not go into our economy. And right. so it's important to us as well, you know, to, to do that. And and also the quality. Um, I remember a long time ago when I started to make um, dresses out of Bengaline, for instance, I remember um, buying a dress that was made out of Bengaline. And I never liked the fabric. I thought it was itchy and gross. But I had customers that kept saying to me, look, it's, it's just a really great fabric. It makes you look wonderful. You should make some dresses. So I buy the dress, and I hate the fabric, but I take the dress to my fabric guy. And, mm-hmm. and, I, was, and I said to him, I need to find a, this fabric. My customers want it. And he goes, well, this is the really cheap stuff. I can get you something that isn't itchy and stiff, but it's going to be twice the price. And I was blown away because the dress was so expensive, and it, I ended up discovering that this company was using the absolute cheapest Bengaline they could find, and Bengaline, in fact, was not scratchy and itchy and uncomfortable and disgusting. You just had to spend twice the price. So I did, because I would much rather have something be comfortable, and I have to build that into the price of my dress. But, you know, it ended up, compared to that other person, my dresses ended up being the same price, because that person was just profiteering. You know, and so you know, we, there's a lot of cost that goes into it, and but we're fine with that. I would rather spend the money and have a, a garment that I could be proud of. Right. Now we're going to get into a couple of fan questions from your Facebook page. So right. Summer, Summer from your Facebook page wants to know what keeps you guys inspired. You guys inspire me every day with the clothes I get to wear. So I love to know. What inspires you? All right, Michelle will go first, and I'll go. Um, well, I pull my inspiration from everything from, like, uh, some of my favorite childhood movies to my favorite bands to paintings to different artists. 
um, you know, I, I can just look at something and I'm like, oh, this reminds me of this thing when I was a kid and this is so great, or this reminds me of something that I love. And I, 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 it starts up an entire story in my brain. So, like, it, it's like a domino effect. Um, I could see the silliest thing and it would inspire a piece of clothing. So, for me, I, I just, my office and my home is surrounded by things that inspire me every moment of every day. And then I'll let Laura talk. Okay, inspires her. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I kind of ascribe to the same thing. I, I think that there are sometimes just people with a specific personality type where their brains are kind of overactive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think when, when your brain is always going, you're looking at everything and, and thinking about it. And, and I kind of do the same thing where I'll look at something and say, oh, wow, I love that color combination. And then I kind of mentally file it. Or I, I think about it. Like, for instance, uh, I went to Hawaii with Micheline a few years ago, and there was, like, green and purple together on this gorgeous leaf. And I still haven't done anything with a dress, but I keep buying um, uh, um, plants for my garden, and it's all things that are green and purple together. You know, and so it's, like, still in my brain, and it's going to come out at some point. So I, I kind of do the same thing where I, I get I get a little bit more obsessive. I'll find something and it'll kind of stick in my brain until I get it out. And Micheline can tell you, like, if I see a jacket that I, I think would be awesome if I just changed X, Y, and Z or something, I will start sketching jackets over and over and over. And I will start buying jackets over and over, which is that I don't like to hoard so that's, that's what tells me I need to just design, get the jacket out of my head because I'll keep buying things that look like the thing I want <laughs> until I do it. So I get inspired kind of like by the idea of something, and then I just I go nuts until I make it. And then the last thing that, that happens to me, I do have this weird kind of negative reaction to things that actually inspires me. And by that, I mean when I was talking about how I hate when everything is the same. When I go somewhere and I see things that are just the same crap over and over and a lot of repetition, it, I get agitated. <laughs> and, mm. and then I, I start looking for what isn't there. I'm like, wait a minute, why are they doing this same length? You know what else is cute? Why don't you do something a little shorter? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And I actually start designing as this weird reactive I don't know, like this just, just response to seeing sameness, which to me is extremely, like I said, oppressive. So I, it's almost like I want to break out of it, and so I start designing things that don't look like all the same stuff I'm seeing. So, mm, it. yeah. But that was so interesting. Part of it is just, yeah, part of it is like, oh, that's cute. And the other part is, oh, my God, I can't take seeing all these gladiator sandals or whatever. Maxi dresses. Ah, <laughs> someone do something. So, yeah, and I end up having to design something just so my brain doesn't hurt. So we have some more questions from Facebook. All right. Sarah wants to know, when and how did Laura muster up the courage to say, F it, and pinup girl needs to become a reality? Basically, where did she get the courage to start a business? All right. Well, uh, <laughs> the truth or her? No, I'll tell the truth. No, um, <laughs> you know, like... Necessity is the mother of invention always. I had started a couple of other businesses in my life. I always had this feeling that I wouldn't be able to work for other people. Like I said, I got I was 18, and not even 18, well, no, just 18, got thrown out of college for arguing with professors and stuff. And I, I've, I've always been a little difficult in that regard. 
And so I always had an idea in the back of my mind that I would most likely end up working for myself. And I tried a few things, but I would kind of get bored and move on. Or sometimes just you get so afraid of failure that you don't want to try, you know, and I would give up on things if they got a little bit difficult. And, you know, I did that for a long time. Then um, basically the last wage job I worked at it was at a photo lab, and I had been recruited. Uh, I, that's what I did in New York. And I worked at professional photography labs when I wasn't taking photos. And this uh, this company knew me from New York, and they had moved to Los Angeles. They had recruited me. I worked there for almost two years. But they were a little bit sexist, and uh, three business days after I told them I was pregnant with my daughter, Melena, they fired me at 1030 at night without cause. And it was pouring rain, and my my husband at the time didn't have a cell phone, and I had to go sit on a uh, a bus stop in the pouring rain on the corner of Sunset and Cherokee in Hollywood. And I was very angry and not happy. And men started stopping in their cars and asking me how much for sex. And so no, no. fires, wet, and being mistaken for a prostitute. It was probably one of the lowest points in my life, and I was really pissed off. And I remember thinking to myself, God is my witness. I'm not going to work for anyone else again. I don't care what I have to do, but I'm going to find a way to make my own money. And so when I when I started Pin Up Girl and launched the website, I was also turning 30. I, I think, yeah, I had just turned 30. And, you know, I'm 46 now, but when I was 30, when I just turned 30, it felt like I was a death door. Like, I was now a senior citizen, you know, and I felt like, this is it. I'm running out of time. (laughs) And I remember having a thought, you know, I was putting everything together, and I just said to myself, this will not fail. And it wasn't, I wasn't begging the universe for it to not fail. I wasn't asking. I, I remember just saying unequivocally, this will not fail. And it was just something inside me that was like, you know what, Laura, you're just not going to let this fail. You're going to do what you need to do to make sure that this succeeds. And so it was, it was partially just desperation. <laughs> like, you know, it was sinking into me that I was never going to succeed uh, working for other people. It just simply wasn't my personality, and I had to embrace that. I had to just accept it and be like, look, Laura, you're going to be the kind of person who, who kind of has to be in charge of things, you know, because you don't work well with others in a, you know, I can. I mean, I've, I've worked in, in team situations, but what inevitably happens is I end up leading the team, you know, so mm-hmm. for good or bad. So I said I have to put myself in the position where I did, where I'm leading, and then once I was in that position, I was like, Laura, this is it. You know, if this is the only thing you could do, you better make sure that you can that you do it. So that, that was pretty much it. And then after that, I just set really little goals, and I didn't, I never, when I started, it wasn't, Pinup Girl is going to be a huge business and, and do what we I, – I didn't have the slightest clue that it was going to end up the way it, it is now. All I wanted to do was make sure I could pay my mortgage every month. And once I had that cleared away, I said, well, what else can I do? What else can I do? And I celebrated every little victory. When we launched the website, we did not get an order for three weeks. And when that first order came in, I went out with my husband at the time, and, and we had champagne. It was one order for $80. You know, but I still celebrate. But that's all it took. Yeah, and you just, you just, you have to really appreciate every little thing that happens because if you don't, and you're just beating yourself up because your company isn't where you think you need it to be, 
you're going to fail. Like, if you're not mm. being caring towards yourself and loving and, and really giving yourself a break and, and just, just, you know, celebrating every little victory. So that's how I did it, desperation. Well, that's a very um, inspirational story. That sounds like you need to write a book or something. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll just I'll make it an audio book. Someone will just turn on a tape recorder and I'll talk for three hours. Right. I can do that. Well, I guess she can and will. <laughs> okay, so we have another question from Ashley. Now, Ashley wants to know, um, well, her question is, some designers such as, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing these names right, such as Bernie, Dexter, and Tataya. Do you know Tatiana. who she's talking about? Tatiana. I do. Hi, she's, Tatiana. No, she's, we love Tatiana. So she said, Carrie, both of their clothes, yeah. So she says, some designers, like the two I just mentioned, carry plus sizes, but the largest size fails far short of being true to size. How do you design for an entire true to size run, and how did you learn? I think the secret in that um, comes from your core base size. If the fit is made to fit someone who's really petite, and then you're grading from there all your other sizes, then all your sizes are going to fit too small or too big. It could go either way. So I think the key for us was figuring out that core size range, uh, demographic globally, you know, like for the United States, we, we did some a lot of research to kind of restructure our size charts because our sizing also ran small it did, many yeah. years ago. We adjusted everything. And we readjusted every single garment and um, put a new, you know, size range into place and size chart. So we, we put a lot of thought and research into it, and we made sure that our core base size was where it needed to be and then graded from there and created our own grade rule and did everything ourselves as far as structure. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't do vanity sizing and we also wanted to make sure that we didn't run too small. So, I mean, we have our own very specific fit and that's why we kind of encourage everyone to look at the size charts for every single item that they purchase from our house brand because not every single dress can have the same blanket size chart. It just can't. They're yeah. all made of different fabrics. They have different cuts. They some have lining, you know, fusing, boning. They're more structured. Some are supposed to be more comfortable. Yeah, it'd be very hard to make them all fit a standard size chart. And, and we wouldn't want to anyway because the nice thing is if there's a slight variation, let's say in the 2X size, certain styles might run a little snugger and some, you know, run a little different. That's great because not everyone fits that standard 2X, and some people might be slightly smaller, and some people might be slightly bigger, and then they have those styles that can fit them. Yeah, and certain dresses are supposed to be more fitted than others. Yeah. We have some dresses that have more, and items that are more relaxed, fits more to the office or more casual pieces, like, you know, our peasant top fits more comfortably than the Buddha Vixen top, which is supposed to be really tight and sexy. Which I can't wear. And I'm the only person on earth who doesn't look good in the Buddha That's crazy. <laughs> and, um... So, yeah, that's pretty much the secret. I mean, it's really about doing research and listening to your customers and paying attention to your product. Yeah, we're, I mean, if there's one thing that, it, it, and, it, and it, it, it even sometimes annoys people inside the company, is, you know, Micheline and I are world-class nitpickers. And we, we cannot, we're both the type of person that if we're in a room and uh, a, a picture is off, hanging off center, we're going to fix it. 
if there's a, you know, if we see a dress and there's a thread, we're going to cut it. We're going to notice it. And so we're very tenacious when it comes mm-hmm. to perfecting everything. Like, if we see a problem, and that's, that's something people say, like, oh, wow, you guys are so responsive to your customers. When they say you should do X, Y, and Z, you listen. Isn't that amazing? We're like, no, that's not amazing. That's what you should do because your customers <laughs> are going to tell you when stuff is wrong. <laughs> right. And then you fix it, and suddenly you make a bunch of money because now <laughs> it's fixed. <laughs> right. Now, Patricia so we're, we're from Facebook. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. We're good. Okay, Patricia from Facebook wants to know, what assumptions do you think the other brands make in designing for women, especially plus-size women, that may lead them down the wrong path? And how do you avoid these at Pinup Girl Clothing? Okay. People make a lot of assumptions. I covered this earlier, but the first assumption they make is that the plus-size customer is some sort of weird unicorn human that is different in some way from the other customer. Both customers want the same thing. They want to look great, and they want to feel great. They want, the, the plus customer wants to wear the same thing as everybody else. Uh, a lot of other brands think, and again, they're projecting their own uncomfortable, their own fat phobia ultimately on the plus customer. And so they say, oh, well, we can't make anything with a waist. Plus girls don't want to show their waist. We can't make anything with a small floral print. They don't want to wear that because, you know, it's going to make them look bigger. Oh, they don't want to wear, they don't want to wear anything fitted. That's going, to make, that's going to show how big they And they're actually projecting their own discomfort with a plus body in, in what they're doing. And, and so that, I think, is a big mistake. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe people are just jerks and they don't know what they're doing, but you just see it over and over. You see, you see the same horrible clothes just marketed by different companies. And, and so, you know, I, I think because I never saw the difference between, you know, again, be, besides inches, there's, there's an inch difference. But I never really saw any sort of fundamental difference between different types of bodies. It just was clear to me that make something cute that fits well and 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 looks good and and flatters the the, the female form and you're going to be fine. So I think the biggest assumptions they make is that the the biggest wrong assumption these other clothing companies make is that plus girls uh, feel crappy about themselves and their bodies and wish that they weren't plus or that they want to hide mm. their body. And so Gloria said earlier, like. You know, I, I've just learned from dressing women and, and, you know, being on a ton of our photo shoots and meeting so many of our customers that and, – and going shopping and then seeing – and buying. Like, we're buyers. We bought carry other people's products. The fact that, that when I would find plus-size clothing, it would be ill-fitted, sack-style dresses with, like, elastic waistbands and cheap fabric and no structure, like, just like a – yeah. Like no respect at and, all. And, and I'm just like, well, these girls want to be sexy. These girls want to look feminine. Yeah, maybe not all of them want to wear a wiggle dress. Maybe they would like to wear a swing dress. But damn it, why don't they have a wiggle dress? Like, what's, why can't they show off their boobs if they want to or their butts? Or, like, 
their body shape or anything. Like, why are they forced to look like this? That's not fair. Like, it's and really insulting. It is, because in my opinion, my personal opinion, this is coming from a size small woman, I think that a 2X girl looks better in a dress than most of the pinup girl dresses as I do. She's got a body that showcases that shape better than my body ever could, and I think that they look amazing in our clothing. And we get so excited when we see women embracing their bodies and not being ashamed of them because everyone else is telling them that they have something to be ashamed of and make them cover themselves. And maybe cleavage isn't that for everybody. You can wear camouflage underneath some of our dresses. But, you know, we do have more, you know, demure pieces. Yeah. But at the same time, but, like, no, that's, that's why we started, like, doing doing that. Because, because again, yeah, if you wanted to wear a sexy fitted dress, the, oh, there was literally no other company that was making them it, larger than a size large. It, it, like, comes up to your vagina. Like, <laughs> if you want a sexy dress for most women, it's, like, super short. And I'm like, you know... I'd like it to be fitted, but not that short. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of where we stand. and we, we see the struggle that these women have to deal with, and it's just the injustice <laughs> that, they're, that they have to deal with. It's insane. It's just, just sad, you know? And, and we have one more fan question from Facebook. All this right. one is from Sandy. Sandy wants to know, what has been your favorite print colorway and style of dress produced thus far? I admit, Adeshlin, you go first. Um, I think for my personal stuff, I would say the fetish print's my favorite because it's really funny. I get to see all different women wear that dress and, and they think it's really fun and quirky. Um, as far as my favorite style of dress, uh, I, I guess I love my Hot Rod Honey dress because it's like wearing a really sexy t-shirt. Um, so those would be my two favorite things. All right. I, I'm terrible at picking favorites at all, but I love my Paris fabric, <laughs> and I love my trousers. So my Paris pants are probably my favorite thing on the site, Paris pants. Also, you get to say Paris pants, which is kind of amazing. And um, your Monica dress would be here. Well, no, I love the Monica. The Monica's great. The Monica's been great to me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all the thousands of women who bought that dress. <laughs> But no, I, I like my I like my trousers a lot, and I talk about my trousers all the time. But that it, I, that's another thing women can't find. No matter what size you are, it's very hard to find a pair of pants that fits correctly, that either fits you in the hips, and also fits you in the waist, and also doesn't give you a camel toe, or doesn't give you a unibutt. I mean, there are so many things that can go wrong with a pair of pants, and I I know this because I still every time I go shopping or I'm in a mall. Uh, I, I try on pants from other companies, and I'm always shocked by all the many horrible abominations that end up on my body. So I design my pants to be really comfortable, and they're, like, really my favorite thing because they are super, super comfortable. So I love my pants, and I love my pants. Well, so awesome. And thank you, thank you to everybody that submitted a question on Facebook. Yes, Those were really guys. good questions. And we're getting to the end of the show, and I know you have uh, two events coming up, so I want you to tell me about your two events and anything else exciting coming up we need to be on the lookout for. All right. Yeah, we um, just launched our Mary Blair collaboration collection called The Magic of Mary Blair for Pinup Couture. Um, the official release party is going to be at the end of this month. It is uh, the last Saturday of April, I believe it's the 25th, 
Wait, wait, wait. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to Um No, no, that's the Mary Blair. Yeah, the 25th yeah. is a Saturday. It's going to be at our Pinup Girl Boutique in Burbank, California. Um, it's going to be happening, uh, I believe, at 2 p.m. until 7 p.m. that evening. And we'll be releasing uh, exclusive pieces that have not been released on the site yet. It's going to be a big party. There's going to be free cake balls and champagne and music. And we're going to have some raffles. It's going to be really fun. And it's free for anybody to attend. And then the next day at Disneyland, we have our pinup parade in the park, which we have um, annually twice a year, uh, spring and fall. And we've been doing it for three or four years now. Uh, and yeah, we skipped one year. We skipped one year. year. Skipped, yeah, three three years. And um, it's over a thousand attendees, girls, fans, customers come and. They dress up in pinup girl and in you know modern clothes or pinup girl and vintage clothes and kind of make it their own thing. A lot of them like Disney uh, bound. We call it pug Disney bounding, where they wear pinup girl and they dress up kind of like a character from one of their favorite Disney you know rides or stories or anything. And we have a big we do a bunch of uh, prizes and giveaways and you know raffles throughout the park and there's meetups. So again, that's open to anyone. You can find out about both of these events on our Facebook page for Pinup Girl Clothing, and you can RSVP and get full details. Yeah, Pinup Parades are one of our favorite events because we get to meet so many people that we normally just see on the internet, and then it's kind of funny because we start calling people by their Instagram handles. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and tell me your official website and all of your social media pages so we can keep up with everything Pinup Girl Clothing. All right. The website is pinupgirlclothing.com and Instagram is pinupgirlclothing. Facebook, pinupgirlclothing, three words. And then Twitter is um, Team Pinup. Yeah. Well, awesome. I really enjoyed talking to you ladies. This has been a fabulous interview. Yeah, I we learned had a so great much time. about Yeah, I learned so much about Pinup Girl clothing and you definitely have my support with everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us too. We had a blast. Yes. And we can't Thank wait to you. see more women embracing their bodies and wearing Pinup Girl. That's what we're excited <laughs> to see. Definitely. Well, you ladies enjoy the rest of your evening and continue success. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Have a good And thank you to my fabulous guest this evening. If you haven't already, don't forget to like our fan page on Facebook at facebook.com slash Shanice Lewis Show. I've been your host this evening, Shanice Lewis. Thank you for tuning in and supporting. Until next time, keep thriving in your curves and be blessed.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.